Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Tim Lynch. I'm the director of Cato's project on criminal justice. And today we want to return to the problem of overcriminalization and how the lives of ordinary citizens are impacted by this dangerous phenomenon in our law. There are now thousands of federal criminal statutes on the books. And when you add in the hundreds of thousands of federal regulations that can be enforced criminally, we're looking at a wide spider web that can catch people uh, when they're going about their lives and going about uh, their professions. A few years ago, I thought there was a, a telling moment before the US Supreme Court when one of these federal criminal statutes was being argued before the justices. Uh, a lawyer with the Department of Justice was explaining what he what he's, the position of the department was on the, the scope of one of these uh, federal statutes. And he was interrupted by one of the Supreme Court justices, uh, Justice Stephen Breyer. And he said, wait a second. Uh, according to your reading of the federal law, I think we have about 200 million Americans in the workplace. And under your reading of this federal statute, I think 150 million are on the wrong side of the law. And just consider that for a moment. That's just one of the federal criminal statutes. And in the eyes of the federal government, the leading lawyer at the Department of Justice, he is saying 150 million Americans uh, are criminals. Now, he tried to assure the justices that they would enforce this law in a very prudent and responsible way. But still, it's, it's, it's kind of a frightening situation. Uh, we are in a, in, a, in a situation now where most Americans are criminals. Uh, but they either don't know it or they think that they will not be prosecuted uh, for a federal criminal violation. Now, what about situations where people are completely innocent, where there hasn't been an infraction? Even in this area, we have to be worried because federal regulators and prosecutors have so much power that they can pressure people who are totally innocent into pleading guilty and paying fines. Because when innocent people are targeted, these days, uh, criminal defense attorneys will advise them, look, it's probably better for you to plead guilty and let's negotiate the most lenient punishment and fine that we can negotiate. Because if you choose to fight, you're going to go bankrupt. You're going to lose all of your savings with legal fees fighting the government. And over the months uh, uh, that the case is dragging on, the negative publicity is going to ruin your reputation and ruin your business. So you're advised, even if you're innocent, often, you know, just, just surrender uh, and, and, and give up and plead guilty. This is why 98% of the criminal cases in our federal system do not go to trial. A lot of people know, you know, we have trials and we have plea bargains, but they really are not aware of how lopsided the system is. 98% uh, never go to trial, and this is because uh, usually there is some sort of a plea bargain arrangement. What about the 2% that go to trial? Now, this, this percentage is made up of people, some people who don't really have anything left to lose, like these people are facing the death penalty. So they may as well roll the dice and see, see what can happen. Maybe in those situations, the prosecutors aren't even willing to bargain. The other part of the 2% are people that have just concluded that what is happening to them, uh, they can't stand it. They're just not going to knuckle under uh, to the federal prosecutors in, in their particular circumstances. So I think we have a really good program today. I think you're going to hear, um, you're going to hear several different stories. 
uh, about people that are facing different regulatory agencies and the prospects of, uh, of, of federal uh, investigations. Uh, the format is simple and straightforward. Each speaker is going to speak for about 15 minutes. I'm going to introduce each speaker in turn, and then we're going to open it up and we're going to take your questions. Before I introduce our first speaker, let me ask those of you who came with cell phones, if you just take a moment now to double check and make sure that they are turned off uh, as, a, as a courtesy to our panel. Thank you. Our first speaker today is Kevin Gates. Uh, Mr. Gates earned uh, a degree in chemical engineering from the University of Virginia in 1994. He then took a job at Capital One doing database analysis. As a hobby, he started modeling the stock market and ended up starting TFS Capital with his twin brother, Rich, and another colleague. Their bio says that they got this uh, off the ground using uh, debt from their credit cards that they had pulled together. TFS is now a, a SEC registered investment advisor that now manages over a billion dollars in assets. Mr. Gates is presently involved uh, in the middle of an investigation by FERC, that's the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Over the past few years, uh, FERC has been uh, pursuing a wide variety of firms from large financial institutions like Barclays all the way down to individual traders who, are they, who they are accusing of market manipulation. Now, one of the problems in this area is nobody can be sure what the regulators mean by market ma manipulation and how they define it. Uh, when Mr. Gates was advised by his DC law firm not to rock the boat, uh, that it would be less expensive for him, him and his, his colleagues to just uh, plead guilty and uh, admit guilt and try to negotiate a fine, uh, he went out and got himself another lawyer, somebody who would aggressively fight the government uh, in, in this case. I should also mention that while Mr. Gates's battle with FERC has been ongoing, uh, Norman Bay, who has been the chief uh, of the enforcement unit of FERC, uh, has now been promoted by the Obama administration. And he is now um, being promoted to be in charge of the entire FERC operation. And his confirmation hearing is, is uh, going to be held uh, before a Senate committee tomorrow. Please welcome our first speaker, Mr. Kevin Gates. Thank you, Tim. Um, again, my name is Kevin Gates. I am uh, currently the subject of an investigation by the FERC for market manipulation. These, uh, uh, I guess, uh, the penalties are unclear, but it could be many multiples, uh, m m many million dollars, uh, tens of millions of dollars in fines that they could assess. Uh, one point to clarify, our DC attorney uh, who was originally representing us, he did tell me that it would be cheaper to settle um, and that that's ultimately how it would play out if I worked with him. But that guidance that he was providing was also directed to him by the federal prosecutor. In 2011, after a, an all-day deposition uh, by two federal prosecutors, uh, they asked me to leave the room and the prosecutor specifically told my attorney that Kevin is a businessman, isn't he? He knows it's cheaper to settle than it is to fight this investigation. Uh, to take a step back, um, 
I started, as Tim had mentioned, I started a money management business about 18 years ago with my identical twin brother, Rich Gates, and a third partner. We were all uh, disgruntled employees at Capital One doing database analysis and had a very strong entrepreneurial bug and um, borrowed money from credit cards to, uh, to effectively trade in the stock market. Um, what was a hobby then ultimately became a profession um, where we have uh, over a billion dollars of assets. We run three mutual funds and two hedge funds. The hedge funds uh, were launched in 2001 and have over uh, about a 10% return a year, uh, half the volatility of the market with only one negative year. Our mutual funds uh, are gold rated by Morningstar. Uh, last year, Morningstar uh, described TFS as the alternative fund manager of the year. So we've gotten received rave reviews. Um, part of the obligations of being a portfolio manager and owner of TFS, it's a self-induced obligation, is that we have to keep the majority of our liquid net worth in the funds that we manage for our clients. We think that that's important to align interests with our investors. With the other, ha with the other portion of our money, we can do other things. We can uh, do uh, invest in real estate, we can hire third-party traders, we can put it in cash. Um, uh, and what we had, I guess, beginning in 2007, started evaluating the power markets. And uh, I guess it started in, uh, we were contacted in 2007 by a quantitative analyst at Dominion, which is a utility down in Richmond, Virginia. He was looking to par partner with an independent money management firm. And he contacted us and said, I want to work with you. You're, you're a quant firm. I'm a quant firm. You guys trade stocks and commodities. I trade power. And we said, what's power? What are you talking about? And he effectively introduced us to these markets. Uh, ultimately, he didn't uh, take a job with us, but we did uh, become curious. And we started cold calling independent traders around the country who were uh, largely sitting at home trading personal assets in the power markets. Uh, these traders that we had engaged uh, ran the full spectrum of, of uh, backgrounds and pedigrees. We had one tra a couple traders were, you know, the standard PhD, 10 years of experience at banks and hedge funds and wanted to go off on their own. We had some that, uh, we had one individual who, uh, I'm not even sure if he had a college degree, but had worked his way up um, starting working at a generator and went into semi-retirement and knew the electrical grid better than anybody. Um, these traders were trading personal assets, and we'd approach them and say, we'll put up money as well. Trade our account, Parapasu, as to the trading of your account. You put on me one megawatt in your account, put on four megawatts in our account. We'll pay you a percentage of the, of the profits. And um, if there are losses, we assume all of them. 2008, we engaged a trader named Alan Chen. Alan got his PhD in China when he was 25 years old and moved to the United States afterwards to seek a better life. Alan spent about a decade um, learning the power markets. He worked at Enron, he worked at some of the banks and some of the utilities. And then in 2007, started trading his personal monies. He's uh, down in Houston, Texas. We interviewed Alan, we asked him some standard due diligence questions, became interested in what he was doing and set up an account with Alan. 
2008, uh, 2009. He was, he was doing okay. He was making a little bit of money. There was some volatility, but it was a good diversifier. If, uh, it, it, you know, the power markets are not correlated with uh, the stock markets and other traditional investments. So we thought it was a good complement to our portfolio. Then in 2009, PJM, which is, uh, controls the electrical grid where Alan was trading, came to us and said, you know what? Apparently, we've messed up. Apparently, we've, uh, FERC has told us that we owe you rebates for some of your past trading, and you'll also get them prospectively going forward. And they wrote us basically over the course of three or four months, gave us $900,000 for rebates, for retroactive payments that were owed to us, but they had not been paid to us. And certainly that catches one's attention. Um, the backstory to that was that there were some other traders, unrelated and independent to us, that were battling it out with uh, the, the FERC as it relates to uh, the allocation of line losses on the electrical grid. Without getting into the, too much in the details, originally FERC said, the, the traders, the virtual traders said, I would like to participate in these line losses and collect these rebates. FERC said, no, we don't want, we, we're not going to uh, pay them to you because if we pay them, you will do trades simply to collect these line losses. And then the traders, these independent, unrelated traders, appealed that decision. And FERC said, indeed, we will pay these. And we realized that traders will do trades that would not be profitable but for these rebates. We weren't aware of this. Uh, until they, they actually paid us these rebates retroactively. We got excited, as you can imagine. We liked the investment to begin with. That's why we had money with Alan. We liked it even more now because we were getting these rebates. Um, so we increased our investment. We put more money with Alan, and we asked him to increase his leverage uh, on his trading. That was in the summer of 2010. And um, it started off uh, with this increased leverage. Uh, he started off losing over $400,000. We put in about $2 million, a little over $2 million. In the first couple of days, he lost uh, $450,000. Uh, $450, and then, but subsequent for the next nine weeks, made us about $5 million. So over the summer of 2010, he had turned $2 million into... $7 million doing trades that he may otherwise not have done, but for these rebates. Um, we were, as you can imagine, pretty excited about this situation uh, until the, uh, I guess, the independent market monitor for PJM uh, contacted him and asked him to stop. Uh, what happened since then has just been uh, a complete nightmare and very unpredictable, uh, very surprising. Um, started off with, I, I've been deposed a couple of times. My, uh, my two partners that we, I started the business with, who are also investors in this fund, have been deposed. And two of my other colleagues have been deposed. Um, we have spent, uh, we had spent about a million and a half dollars on position papers expert affidavits and just attorney's fees communicating with the FERC. And, you know, we have many arguments um, to defend ourselves, but the strongest argument that you could 
tell, you know, explain to a jury, a jury is, come on, guys, of course this is lawful. You predicted this. We are doing exactly what you had expected when you uh, introduced these rebates into the, into the marketplace. Um, I had mentioned that the day-long deposition, this was in October of 2011. This was by two gentlemen, Steve Tabakman and Tom Olson. Tom Olson uh, got a lot of publicity because he was a lead investigator into J.P. Morgan's um, trading activity that they settled last July uh, to the tune of about $625 million. And there's different markets, but some similarities between uh, J.P. Morgan's activities, as I understand it, and Allen's activities. Um, it was a day-long deposition where I was being asked questions like, Mr. Gates, do you know that there are tax consequences of wash transactions? First of all, our trades that we were doing were not wash <coughs> trades. They were spread trades. Um, secondly, there's a difference between a wash trade and a wash sale. And the federal prosecutor was... Uh, I believe, confusing the two. Uh, watch sale is a, an, an IRS term for harvesting tax losses. So that was 2011. Uh, the deposition was defended by uh, Energy Bar attorneys, um, where I was told that it would be cheaper to settle. I went back to Pennsylvania <laughs> and hired a, an attorney named Bill McSwain from Drinker Biddle. Uh, Bill uh, is a local guy, grew up in the area where I grew up, um, went to Yale undergrad, went to work on Wall Street for a couple of years, and for, uh, for whatever reason decided to go to the Marines and was a Marine sniper uh, for about four, five years, and then went to Harvard and was editor of the Law Review. And as soon as I saw that uh, pedigree, I said, that's my man. That's exa it's exactly what I want. Um, <laughs> We hired Bill to, at, at that point, uh, to write um, the position paper to collaborate with the energy bar attorneys. And it was about six weeks later that we submitted it. The position paper was so um, forceful, or used some strong language, to the point where one of the energy bar attorneys would not sign his name on it, on the position paper that we had submitted. That position paper was submitted on a Friday at 6 o'clock uh, in the evening. The very next day, business day, the next Monday, uh, early afternoon, the prosecutors, Steve Tabakman and Tom Olson, called that energy bar attorney, who was representing me but wouldn't sign his name on the position paper, and said, basically, tell Mr. McSwain and Kevin Gates that we've read the entire position paper and we're not convinced. Uh, if you read it in detail, you will realize that he's, uh, they've misrepresented facts and information. Uh, they're twisting up the court cases. This, this, and again, this position paper, well, it was a very dense document. It was about 130 pages. It had two expert affidavits, one from Richard Tabers, who was at MIT and wrote a, wrote a paper, a research paper in the 70s that led to the deregulation or basically created the nodal system as it exists today. The other was from Richard Wallace, who worked for the SEC and FINRA as a market regulator for 18 years. Very dense materials, uh, but had been discredited by the federal prosecutors um, 
the very next business day. Um, then I guess um, in what fast forward other depositions, so on and so forth. In February of last year, the FERC uh, with Mr. Norman Bay specifically signed a settlement agreement with another individual trader, unrelated, um, from Oceanside Power, who was doing similar trading activity as our trader. Um, and this was a settlement this gentleman made $30,000. Uh, he was doing trades that he otherwise wouldn't have done but for the rebates. Um, they took his $30,000 from him. They penalized him $50,000 on top of it. They kicked him out of the markets for a year. They said, if you want to come back to the markets, you have to go to compliance classes. And now he's got this scarlet letter of market manipulator on the public record. Uh, this is February of last year. August of last year, we received our preliminary findings of market manipulation. This was a 28-page document that uh, detailed the supposed wrongdoing of our trader and our activities. Uh, we read that document and basically put us in a very difficult situation. Uh, we had you know, a handful of choices. We could have settled and could have said, you know, when, to be fair, that was one of the, the only things that the federal process, the FERC has said that I actually agree with. Perhaps it would have been cheaper to settle. Every, everything else, uh, we're having a very significant disconnect. We had thought about, you know, realized that we had the possibility of settling, but we're too far along in our careers at this point to consider that, and I'm not going to have that on my record. We thought maybe we can spend another million and a half really trying to educate them, hoping, praying that they'll actually read and understand these documents. We said, that's probably not going to likely to happen. The other option was to just let the course play out as it naturally would. I've seen that story play out numerous times in the past, and you can just Google you know, FERC settlements and see how that plays out for the individuals. The fourth option was, you know what, let's just go open kimono. Let's just put it all out on the website, all of our legal back and forth. We're not able to effectively communicate with the FERC, but because I am a professional money manager, my reputation is, you know, and as a citizen, my reputation is critically important to me. Let's let the community and our, and our investors and our business partners decide. We put all, created a website, FERCLitigation.com. We put all of the legal back and forth that we've had with the FERC on it. Uh, their directives to save documents, their data requests, even their preliminary findings of market manipulation. And let's, we had already hired three expert affidavits. We said, originally we said, let's go out and get 30 of them. Uh, we fell a little bit short of that uh, just because of various constraints. But right now we've picked up an additional 10 expert affidavits. Um, and these just aren't standard expert affidavits. These are expert affidavits of the very people who define manipulation. We have the former enforcement director at FERC. We have two former chief economists at the SEC, one former deputy chief economist at the SEC, um, uh, Craig Parang, who is probably the world's most leading expert in commodity market manipulation, um, a former chief economist at the CFTC, um, Professor Bill Hogan and uh, Dr. Tabers, who, you know, led this deregulation movement. So, um, you know, we have the, the, the tippity top, I would suggest, of, uh, of experts.
Um, so we said, let's engage them. Let's have them review the preliminary findings and let's put their reviews out on the website as well. And uh, because it's very dense material that's difficult to digest and process, we came up with the idea of creating a video as well. So we went around and interviewed f the five experts who were available uh, to be interviewed and put up, put up a little documentary. Um, but that was, you know, the, and, and we responded to the FERC with a two sentence response. The first sentence was, your preliminary findings make no sense. Um, we didn't want to do this. This is not something that we chose to do. I, I don't choose to, you know, I'm not necessarily a fighter or somebody who goes out picking battles with people, but we had no choice. We had absolutely no choice that we had to defend our good names and not succumb to these, uh, these tactics. We also um, went to, sent the former enforcement director into the, uh, uh, the senior management of OE and said, guys, you know, shortly after we submitted the position paper, we told them exactly what we were going to do. We told them that we had engaged 10 additional experts. We told them that we were going to upload it all to the website. We told them that we were not going to settle. And we asked them, we pled with them to, to back down or step down, and that didn't occur. So fast forward to where we are today, the site is live. Um, we've uh, gotten a good bit of publicity. We've had uh, probably about two or three weeks ago an editorial in the Wall Street Journal focusing exclusively on our case. There are two editorials in today's Wall Street Journal mentioning our case and talking to the, bro the, issue, the broader issue at large of the FERC Office of Enforcement Policies. Uh, a lot of publicity in industry press, local publicity in the Philadelphia area, uh, where Rich and I now work. Uh, Bloomberg has picked up on it um, and you know, getting a good bit of attention. A lot of visitors to the site, a lot of people who are contacting us and have submitted their email addresses and uh, you know, a lot of new friends, I would say. Um, but we haven't heard a word from the, uh, from the FERC. And so right now, technically, it's a non-public informal investigation into market manipulation. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, those two Wall Street Journal articles today are very good, and I hope you picked up uh, copies of them at the registration table uh, before you came in. If you didn't, uh, you can get them on the way out. Our second speaker today is William Yitman, who is a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise uh, Institute, where he specializes in environmental regulation and energy markets. Will follows FERC's role in electricity markets, and I asked him to be with us today to offer comments on uh, the enforcement actions of FERC and whether they're really defending markets as they claim or whether or not they're undermining markets. Uh, Will earned his bachelor's in environmental sciences from the University of Virginia and his master's in international administration from Denver University. He's testified before Congress and many times before state legislatures uh, on environmental and en energy policy. So please welcome our second speaker, William Yeatman. Thank you very much, Tim. 
The, uh, by very brief way of background, my organization, the Competitive Enterprise Institute, we're a free market think tank like the Cato Institute. We don't touch social issues. We only deal with economic issues. The Federal Register is our daily newspaper. So that's what we're all about. Um, I just want to briefly talk to you, give you sort of a bird's eye view of the flaws inherent to FERC's prosecution regime and how these flaws have engendered mistreatment of the Gates brothers, I would argue. Um, so FERC hasn't always had these, these authorities, these purviews, these broad, this broad purview over these markets, these electric, natural gas markets, transmission markets. Um, it was actually a response to Enron, the, the big debacle in the California electricity markets in 2000 and 2001 that precipitated a legislative response. In 2005, the Congress passed the, the Energy Policy Act, and this, uh, this gave FERC the authority to pursue civil penalties for so-called market manipulation in power and gas markets, as well as certain transportation service markets. So this is a broad expansion of their authority. Now, they were getting into this, this new game, that of, of prosecuting civil crimes with respect to market manipulation. Um, and what did, they, what did they base their model upon? Well, I'm pretty sensical. The Securities and Exchange Commission, and indeed they, they borrowed directly from the enabling statute for the SEC, the 1934 Securities Exchange Act. This is problematic because um, we've got one law passed in 1934 to deal with securities markets, and then we're trying to superimpose that regulatory regime upon a different discrete market, that of, that of these energy markets, um, the, to an efficient energy market, I should say, um, as created um, by FERC. Neither here nor there. The upshot is um, it's an ill-precise fit, okay? So that engenders problems. These problems are further exacerbated by FERC's refusal to date, since they received these authorities, to clarify what they mean by market manipulation. They have yet to put out there a, a, a definitive definition of fraud. Um, instead, what we've got is sort of a what the, the regime or how we identify porn per Justice Potter, that famous definition of, I don't know what porn is, but I know it when I see it. So that's what we've got going on at FERC right now. And I'll give you one example that should elucidate this point quite clearly. The alleged harm that the Gates brothers perpetrated was that they engaged in, in non-economic, allegedly non-economic trades in order to, to receive these rebates. So, so the trades, the, the ends weren't the trades themselves, allegedly, the, the ends were the rebates. Well, I can think of a, of a parallel example um, that seems to me no different whatsoever, but which is actually, um, let's see, supported, promoted by FERC, and that's the wind production tax credit. You, you may or may not be familiar with this. By way, by, by rule of Congress, we pay, I think it's $23 per megawatt. Um, a tax credit is given per megawatt generated by wind electricity. So uh, I won't go into how these tax regimes work, but all you have to know is they receive this beneficial tax treatment for producing wind power. The upshot is they are able to sell independent power producers that, that make wind power. They can sell their wind power on the market for negative prices solely in order to recoup this tax credit, millions and millions, scores of millions of dollars. CBO report, we're spending $2 billion on this a year, just these rebates. Now, this, this of course, has inimical effects on the market, to be sure. I mean, if you're a nuclear power producer, you're pretty darn upset that due to the tax code, your competitors can undercut you, can indeed, can, can, can price their electricity at negative cost, 
Okay? That's the same thing. Now, FERC, just last week, we had the FERC, the acting FERC commissioner come out in favor of this. Said he didn't see any problems with this. I mean, this is a feature of the market. We're trying to support wind, right? So this is good. But when the Gates brothers, when the Gates brothers do the same thing, all of a sudden there's a big problem. Why did they refer to some, some hard and fast rule, some distinction between the two? No. Again, this is wholly in the eye of the beholder. So that's super problematic. And indeed, this sort of uh, a willy-nilly approach to fraud is, is, is very much evident in the FERC complaint, their preliminary findings. And I beg you, it, it's not that difficult. I mean, these are arcane markets, but you can read it and try to make out their logic. Try to make out their logic. Um, I would argue there is no such logic. Um, and indeed, when, when you're trying to pin the tail on the donkey, when you're trying to, to articulate a case for fraud that has no definition, um, it engenders these sorts of poor complaints. And I'll just note two examples that, that, that stru struck me as quite conspicuous within these preliminary findings. One was that uh, supposedly these trades that the Gates brothers engaged in, um, supposedly they were uneconomic because uh, they avoided risk. And the evidence for risk avoidance was the trader in questions, Dr. Chen's admission that he sought to minimize risk. Well, that's circular reasoning. That doesn't make any sense. That's the whole, I mean, uh, thank you, sir, for laughing. The, uh, but yeah, that, that makes no sense. That's a, a silly complaint. Second thing that struck me about their complaint, which again, I think is, is attendant to these structural flaws with FERC, in, in particular, this absence of a definition for what fraud entails, is that their best evidence of market manipulation, and again, this is how the, the Gates brothers supposedly hurt people, okay? Their best evidence is a May 30th trade, 2000. 10, I believe, May 30, 2010, that lost $180,000, okay? So it was a losing trade that supposedly engendered these inimical effects in the market. That, that to me, at face value, is pretty silly. So um, I would argue, again, the cause is they've so, to date, refused to define what they mean by fraud. I don't want you um, to think this is a depressing talk. My, my purpose here is to, in addition, giving context of Mr. Gates' scenario, to also give us hope, um, to give us hope for a better way forward when it comes to overseeing these markets. I'd argue that the Gates case is, is an archetypical example of how federal oversight cannot work. Um, wh what we've got here is these in incredibly complicated, incredibly convoluted, incredibly complex markets that are moving at the speed of technology. To task the federal government with oversight, effective oversight of these markets, I'd argue is impossible. I mean, there's too much information moving too fast to do so. They're always a step behind. We see this. I mean, hopefully, it is hoped that you recalled Mr. Gates' comments to the effect of, I read the complaint. It made no sense. I don't know what these guys are talking about. I don't think they know what they're talking about. I'd argue that's a manifestation of exactly what I'm talking about. You, you can't, we can't hope to have effective federal oversight. So what's the alternative? What's our only hope, I'd argue? That's competitive discipline engendered by liberalized markets. Um, what we need here is we need, we need FERC, or I would argue certainly, um, that rather than this fool's errand of, of regulatory oversight by the state, what we can hope to do is to liberalize these markets, which again suffer from all sorts of distortions that I could spend hours talking about. And to be sure, let's talk about that afterwards. Email me, whatever. Instead of trying to knock down these barriers, making these markets more efficient and thereby engendering competitive discipline, which would actually counteract effectively these, these allegations of market manipulation, whatever that means, we're seeing FERC move in the opposite direction. 
on the policy side. So instead of the liberalization of transmission cost, we're seeing the socialization of transmission cost. We're seeing no efforts whatsoever to reach out to states, which again is where much of this liberalization would have to take place. But again, FERC could provide expertise, could facilitate this. And I'd argue that that's a way forward. That's a future um, that would actually produce effective oversight as opposed to what we've seen now, which is this capricious, arbitrary, it's what's good for wind is not good for the Gates brothers. You know, that doesn't, that doesn't cut it for me in a, in a rule of law country like ours. So that's my two cents. Thank you very much. Thank you, Will. We're going to turn now to uh, another federal agency and another case. Uh, our next speaker is Dr. William Hurwitz, and he's going to tell us about his nightmare encounter with the DEA and federal prosecutors. Now, when you normally think of the DEA, you normally think of uh, agents that are conducting raids and trying to uh, you know, uh, stop gangs from smuggling narcotics into the country and from selling them on the black market. But the DEA also has jurisdiction over doctors uh, who prescribe medicines. And the problem that has arisen in this area is that the line between an appropriate and lawful uh, administration of drugs and prescriptions and the illegal and inappropriate uh, administration of drugs has become very murky. And when that happens, uh, honest doctors can fall into a legal trap because the good faith judgment of a doctor uh, might not comport with the opinion of DEA agents. And that is what happened in this case. Dr. Hurwitz earned his medical degree from Stanford. His specialty was treating patients who suffer from chronic pain. And his practice was right over here in uh, Northern Virginia. The Washington Post described him as a major figure in national pain management circles. Now, in 2001, the police discovered that some of Dr. Hurwitz's patients uh, were exaggerating their pain to the doctor. So he was giving them uh, lots of prescriptions for medicine. And then these patients were selling these pills that they acquired out on the black market. Now, when the authorities became aware of this situation, they didn't turn to Dr. Hurwitz and said, this is what's happening. They made deals with his, his patients and they said, look, we'll go lenient on you if you will provide testimony against Dr. Hurwitz. Now, this is a scary type of situation. And you might think that, well, at least uh, a physician, a well-known physician, would have the financial wherewithal in order to fight uh, bogus charges. But consider what happened in this case. First, prosecutors froze all of Dr. Hurwitz's assets. Second thing is they set his bail for $2 million, which is really unheard of in, in these types of circumstances. And then one thing I didn't know until I started reading up on this case is that state medical boards, when a doctor is indicted, they will immediately suspend his medical license pending the resolution of the charges. So with his assets frozen and not being able to practice medicine, uh, he couldn't earn money in order to finance a, a legal defense uh, for his case. So he had to close down his practice. Even before his trial even got started, his reputation was being destroyed by press conferences held by uh, federal prosecutors who would say things like, oh, this guy's just an ordinary street dealer. 
Uh, I'm glad he could be with us today to tell us more about uh, his experience with the American criminal justice system. Please welcome Dr. William Hurwitz. Well, I'm glad I could be with you here today, too. In the first trial, uh, which concluded in, I think, 2004, I was sentenced to 25 years in prison. And during the sentencing hearing, uh, one has an opportunity to have one's friends and supporters give little talks to the judge in hopes of softening their response. I felt as if it was a eulogy at my own funeral. I thought that I'd give you some background. My case really occurred in the context of changing attitudes toward pain management and opioids and a reaction by the federal regulatory authorities and now by the various boards of medicine to what has been perceived as an epidemic of drug abuse diversion. But when I got out of medical school in 1971, um, I was a Peace Corps doctor for a couple of years in Brazil till 75. I finished my residency a couple of years later. And I opened a practice in Adams Morgan and in the Pal Palisades part of uh, DC. And over the next 10 or 11 years until 1991, I had a very pleasant life. I was married, I had two children, and I bought a house in McLean. During the course of those uh, 11 or 12 years, uh, four patients came to me who had chronic pain. One was a German military attache whose head had been pinned between two cars in an automobile accident and had post-concussion headaches. One was a PhD in history and specifically had written a, a history thesis on Paraguay. My wife was from Paraguay, so I had an affinity with him, and he'd come to me with his medical records from a University of Southern California medical center doctor who had been treating him with opioid medications. A third patient was a woman who was born with a bicornuate uterus. This is a situation in which there's a septum in the middle of the uterus and it leads to severely painful menstrual cramps. So on a monthly basis, she was in agony. And the fourth patient who came to me was uh, a young government attorney who worked for the Maritime Commission and who had been a scuba diver and who had made the mistake of ascending too quickly and developed the bends which is a circumstance in which nitrogen, which when you're deep is under pressure, as you come up, it turns into little bubbles. And those bubbles then obstruct the flow of blood to, in, this, in his case, uh, his hip. So he had something called aseptic uh, necrosis of his hip, avascular necrosis of his hip, which is a chronically painful condition because at the border of dead bone and live bone, there's a chronic inflammatory reaction. And because he was a young guy, and because hip replacements have a life expectancy of five or six years and need to be replaced, he was too young uh, to contemplate having a series of hip replacements that would have perhaps been an alternative solution to his pain. In the course of receiving these patients, I became more familiar with the developing literature on pain. Uh, the analysis of pain had changed dramatically. There was sort of the older conception, which is um, like a telephone. That is, it rings in one place, a signal is sent to your brain, and you have pain. The newer conception was that there's a switchboard <laughs> which can adjust the volume. And this is called the feedback control mechanism of pain. And the 
function of endorphins in the, in the body to modulate the response to pain was beginning to be elucidated, and the relationship between the opioid medications, morphine and similar medicines, uh, and modulating pain perception was developing in a sophistication from the late 50s through the middle of 80s and early 90s. The attorney uh, was being prescribed by me 100 five milligram oxycodone pills a day. And I don't know if, how many people take 100 pills a day, probably not too many. But from the point of view of most laymen, that looks like a lot of pills. And what's hard to understand from, for, what shall I say, the uninformed here, is that the progression of tolerance to opioids is a geometric progression. If one doesn't work, take two. If two don't work, take four. If four don't work, take eight. The distinction as you double the dose is the same, and tolerance develops pretty quickly. So as you increase the dose, you can get to pretty high numbers. And it turns out if you don't increase the dose, opioids sensitize the body to pain. So starting somebody on opioids and not giving them enough to compensate for the increased sensitization, in effect, is condemning them to somewhere, to, to being an effect on the borderline between withdrawal and increased pain. So my strategy in accordance with and in compliance with the general instructions about opioid therapy was to titrate the dose to effect. There was a day in 1991, the fall of 1991, when DEA agents and people from the DC, uh, what's it, what do they call it? Reg, uh, Medical Regulatory Board came into my office, uh, told me something was bad. <laughs> Uh, I had actually been aware the pharmacy below my office is where my patient had filled his medicines, and I had retained a lawyer uh, at that time. However, when I called the lawyer and said, they're here, he wasn't available. And the DEA agent said, we'd like you to surrender your DEA registration. And I didn't know very much about how these things worked at the time. So I said, if, if I prove that I'm right, will I get it back? And they said, yes. But what I didn't realize is that if you surrender it, you have the burden of proof to show that you should receive it. If you don't surrender it, they have the burden to take it away from you. In any event, I retained another attorney, and we had a hearing before the DC board. And the attitude of the members of the board was a perfect reflection of the conventional and, I would say, ignorant understanding of pain and opioid treatment. And they were unwilling to consider any negotiation with me about restoring my license or allowing me to continue what I was doing. On the second day of the hearing, there was a headline in the Washington Post, the first, the first guidelines of the Agency for Healthcare Policy and Research promoted aggressive pain treatment with opioids. And all of a sudden, the question was, which government are they listening to? Also, my, an expert witness that I had for this first hearing was the head of the pain service at NIH. So in, what shall I say, in a similar circumstance, there's a body of science or, or understanding that's technical, and then there's sort of regulatory ignorance that's trying to enforce its will against that. In response to the uh, changing attitude, at least among the people at, the, uh, at NIH and the Agency for Healthcare Policy and Research, the board returned my license to me. The DEA grudgingly gave me back my registration. 
Uh, but I had already suffered some losses. I had been the medical director of a number of nursing homes. I'd participated in a number of health plans. All those people cut me off. So I was in simply a primary general care internist. Um, but I was so mystified by the uh, lack of intelligence implicit in the legal process that I decided to go to law school. And I went to George Mason Law School starting uh, the fall of 2002. I'm sorry, uh, 1992. I'm 10 years ahead of myself. While there, um, the publicity given both to my case and to the changing attitude toward pain was beginning increasing popular recognition, journalistically and otherwise. And I was invited to talk on a national uh, news program, I think it was called America Tonight, in which uh, the general issue of the undertreatment of pain was being raised, and experts on various sides of this issue were suggesting how it should be approached. After that television appearance, my office started getting calls from all over the country of people who had chronic pain and who wanted treatment. Now, at this time, this is pretty early in this development of more aggressive use of opioid treatment, there were no protocols. There was no particular concern about addiction and or diversion because there hadn't been any real clinical experience relating to this. So my practice from, 2000, from 1992 to 1996 was accommodating this onslaught of patients in a circumstance in which many of them lived out of state and in which there were no clear guidelines relating to how to monitor or deal with them. In 1996, two of my patients died, and families complained to the Board of Medicine, and the Virginia Board of Medicine uh, initiated another action, summarily suspended my license, and we had a long hearing. Again, the crew of pain experts favorable to opioid treatment were in my court, and they all testified at my hearing, and the net result was, after a period of a couple of years, I was given my license back. And that brings us up to 1998. In 1998, once my shingle was hung again, former patients of mine who had been floundering for a few years came back to me. Oh, one of the consequences of the termination of my practice in 1996 were seven of my patients committed suicide. That is the... the despair, the lack of, of alternative uh, sources of care, uh, the fact that the treatment itself was somewhat unconventional uh, led to uh, desperate circumstances. From 1998 to 2002, the same pattern of uh, people coming to me from all over the country. And this time, OxyContin, which had been released in 1996, became a significant, uh, what shall I call it, black market commodity. And there were, I guess, developing uh, a more formalized trade mechanism in this commodity, which I wasn't really aware of. I have to confess, I really had no connection to the drug culture as an undergraduate. And I really, what shall I say, didn't have street smarts in these matters, and also felt that it wasn't really the role of the doctor to be a policeman. Patients came to me, they came, I had a sort of elaborate introductory requirement that they provide medical records, that they have a local physician, that they have the documentation of the injuries that cause their, their chronic pain. Uh, and I had 
as part of the consent order with the DEA and the Virginia Board of Medicine, had patients waive their right of confidentiality and had a duty to provide to the DEA a list of my patients, their addresses, and all of the controlled substances I prescribed to them. And I thought, even if you're a crook, <laughs> you don't want me giving your name to the DEA, and I thought that would be an adequate deterrent to prevent diversion. It wasn't. And the net result was, as uh, Tim indicated, a bunch of my patients, in fact, were a network of distributors. Those people were turned on me, and I ended up being convicted. The, we appealed the conviction after the first trial, and the Fourth Circuit reversed my conviction on appeal because Judge Wexler, who had presided over the first trial, had excluded from consideration my good faith. And there's a, the Fourth Circuit opinion is an interesting one to read because it distinguishes between objective good faith and subjective good faith. Objective good faith, in legal terms, refers to the what, what might be called a conventional doctor would do under those circumstances. Subject of good faith would be what I was really thinking. Well, nothing that I was doing was particularly conventional. That is, I was already sort of ahead of the curve with respect to the way in which I was titrating the use of the medicines and the way I was prescribing them, the way I was treating side effects. And uh, in any event, it, it, we were successful in getting a reversal. At the second trial, Judge Brinkema, who started off saying, why on earth isn't he settling and going, <laughs> and, 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 uh, going to jail, so to speak, was ultimately convinced by, again, my experts, who convinced her that counting pills made no sense medically. And counting pills was the main thing that the prosecution was doing. There was one, one of my patients, and I think I would credit this patient as uh, the one who turned the point, was somebody who was roughly the same age as Judge Wexler, I mean, as Judge uh, Brinkema, and who was a judge's wife. And she had had severe headaches, and because her doctors uh, wanted to find an alternative to opioids, had had her have brain surgery that had essentially caused her to neurologically regress and to have to relearn how to do everything from bathrooming to talking and moving after this brain surgery, a surgery called a cingulotomy. And the, she, was, she had taken 60 dilaudid pills an hour or two before she testified. And again, that's a lot of pills. And she was perfectly sharp, perfectly clear, and, 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 and said that until she had come to me, she had really been disabled. And since I, within the first day of my adjusting her medications, she was now functional. I don't know if I'm running out of time at this point, but, but uh, I wanted to, I, I sort of summarized, and I think I'll read, even though it's perhaps a little straining to read, just general reflections in my story. One is that the regulatory and criminal cases against me occurred during a period of evolution of medical attitudes toward chronic pain addiction and opioid therapy that was in tension with the war on drugs. This tension is reflected in popular and prosecutorial attitudes and understandings of the major issues uh, in contrast to the medical understandings. So this is a popular language and there's a medical language. So there's confusion, for example, between dependence and addiction. Addiction in medical terms is use despite harm for other than a proper purpose. Dependence simply means the fact that one requires high doses of medicine and would suffer withdrawal upon uh, removal of those medicines. 
this, this, these confusions affect the way in which the jury views evidence. And in a way, you're fighting a, a, a claim that is on a different playing field and operating in different dimensions. I talk one language, jurors and the prosecutor talk another language, and it's hard to make the translations. There's confusion specifically in a criminal trial between medical mistake or malpractice and criminal intent. There's tension also in the understanding of the doctor's role as consensual and consultative. That is, you go to a doctor, you need to sign an informed consent form versus paternalistic and policing. If you're a pain patient now, you have to submit to random drug testing. You're treated essentially as a suspect. It takes enormous financial, familial, social, and psychological resources to put up with an assault by the state. Uh, again, as Tim mentioned, essentially my assets were blocked. If I didn't have friends and family who had enough to keep me going and a law firm that expended $3 million in, in lawyer time on my appeal and second trial, I probably would still be in jail or in prison. One of the ironies is that in the discussions about Obamacare, the argument was that if we have federal insurance, uh, we'll have the government there between the doctor and the patient. The irony, of course, is the, the government is there. <laughs> anyway, the strategy of prosecuting doctors as drug dealers has been futile with respect to its policy objectives. Recent articles in the Washington Post talk about the epidemic of heroin use among Fairfax County residents. The, uh, there was a, 19, uh, a 2010 article about, in spite of cotton candy, in which lots of doctors and presumed dealers were put in prison, that there was still an explosion of prescription drug abuse in Northern Virginia, D.C., and Maryland. Deputizing doctors in the war on drugs has pernicious effects on medicine. It subverts the moral basis of, of the medical relationship with, between doctors and patients. It destroys the confidentiality. Patients are treated as suspects, subjected to random drug testing, punished for deviation from medical instructions for their, quote, noncompliance. If one's interested in liberty, one's not interested in doctors being like that. The intimidation of doctors has restricted access to effective treatment for those who suffer chronic pain. And one of the interesting things about the rhetoric of the DEA is they cite how many drug overdoses or how many people go to emergency rooms with medical complications. There's no countervailing statistic of how many people commit suicide because of chronic pain. So there's no balance in the sense of what's really in the interest of social utility. The criminalization and regulatory suppression of medical judgment that deviates from accepted orthodoxy is a growth industry applied to alleged overutilization of antibiotics. For example, in the treatment of Lyme disease, there have been regulatory and other actions against doctors who have treated it aggressively with antibiotics, or certain kinds of procedures. I think a couple of weeks ago, there was an article about a uh, pain clinic that was implanting uh, intrathecal pain pumps uh, that turned out to be a high Medicaid, Medicare biller. And uh, the question is, are they going to criminalize the decision to do that sort of thing? Well, these things subvert public and patient welfare, privacy, and their liberty interest in controlling their bodies. That's Thank you.
Okay, our next speaker is Lawrence Lewis. Uh, Mr. Lewis's case was highlighted in the Wall Street Journal uh, a few years ago, and the headline of that article said, A Sewage Blunder Earns Engineer a Criminal Record. He was a building manager for a retirement home right here in Washington, D.C., and one day there was a backup in the commodes uh, in the restrooms of this retirement home, and so he did what he was trained to do, which was to divert the sewage system to an outside storm drain uh, so as to prevent flooding inside the retirement home. The government turned around and prosecuted him for a violation of the Clean Water Act. Uh, and even though there was no evidence that he was trying to violate the law or cause any harm. Uh, going back to this idea of good faith, people operating in good faith and they still get prosecuted. Let me tell you a little bit more about Mr. Lewis. Mr. Lewis started out working uh, on the maintenance staff in the DC school system. He took classes at night to learn about power plants and boiler rooms. Uh, he eventually rose to the position of uh, facility manager. You know, this is a guy that works hard, uh, raised a family, and, and, and tried to do the right thing. But when he got caught up in this criminal prosecution, uh, his lawyer told him that under the Clean Water Act, uh, his honest intentions, his honest mistakes just didn't matter. Uh, when I called him last week and I said, you know, some people just don't believe uh, me when I tell them about your case, the idea that a guy like him could be dragged into court by federal prosecutors and called a criminal. Uh, a lot of people just don't believe me when, when I tell them that. So I'm really glad he could be with us today to tell his own story. So please welcome uh, Mr. Lawrence Lewis. Well, good morning or afternoon. I guess it's afternoon by now to everyone. And, and thank you, Mr. Lynch, and each one of you for letting me share my story. Uh, my name is Lawrence Lewis, native of the nation's capital. Um, I had an opportunity to uh, work at the Norwood Army uh, Military Home in, on Oregon Avenue Northwest, which was an honor for me because my father served in World War II and, and Korea War. So I had an opportunity to uh, be there to serve the people that had served all of us and get paid for doing so. Um, while I was there, while I was there, uh, they had a, a problem at the institution with sewage problems, and every facility had their own share of problems, whether it's structural, mechanical. In this particular case, it was sewage. Um, and this particular problem had been around, from my understanding, at least 20 years. Um, one of the things the staff told me when I first met with the staff was that it's a good place to work and all, but we had this particular problem that is overwhelming. So once they were telling me about the problem, I said, well, you know, let's try some chemicals. Uh, so I know, based on my experience, sometimes depends on what kind of piping they use when they're doing the drains that uh, roots can grow up in them. And they said they never used that. So I said, let's try some of that. So we got some root killer and put down the drains. And months went by, no backups. And they were saying it was really generally more frequent than that. So we said, well, maybe, maybe we resolved the problem. And then one day, uh, maybe my third month there or so, uh, somewhere in there that uh, we had the backups. And the staff went and done what they normally do when they have backups, uh, which was try to divert the, the sewage 
before it won't destroy uh, the interior. And on that ground floor was the hospice section, which is where the most un you know, vulnerable people are health-wise. So, you know, that was the objective is protecting them. Uh, so the staff, you know, for, we had people on the staff at least been there 28, 29 years, and they said since they've been there, that's what they've done. And it seemed to it help the institution to do it that way. We also had a new facility being built. It was near completion. And on this particular day, we had a backup. The staff used to do that until the plumbers can get there. The plumber may be there in an hour, maybe three hours. It depends on, you know, what contractors they had that was that was available. And on this particular day, the which we wasn't aware of, the contractors building a new building, they put a white substance in the drain to determine where that water flowing from the new facility, which wasn't open yet. And someone down the park, uh, part of Rock Creek Park is near that, uh, seen the white substance, and they was a, they thought it was a perhaps a terrorist threat or whatever. So we called law enforcement, and law enforcement came and they went through the neighborhood and 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 ended up determining it came from from Norwood. I was home at the time when all this happened. Uh, I was director of engineering at that time, but also present at work was my boss, who was a captain, and and my assistant, who was an assistant engineer there. But I was contacted by the police, uh, demanded that I come back to work. And this is like 4.30 in the evening, and um, they didn't give me any, any explanation. They said, look, you need to get here right away. Then I had some of my staff members call me by phone was telling me, look, all these police is up there, these emergency vehicles, da da da, this and that. So I'm riding up, like, man, that's kind of crazy. Maybe something blew up in there or something, you know what I mean? And I get back, I get up there, and soon I get out of my car, it's like 40 emergency vehicles. So I get out of my car, evidently somebody identified who I were, and three officers walked, you know, rapidly towards me. To come and go with us, so they took me inside and said, "Look, we know everything. People gave us statements. You, you might as well tell us everything, because uh, we already know the story. You got a chance to, to, to help yourself." And I'm like, "What in the world going on? I, I couldn't figure it out. Couldn't put it all together." And they said, "Everyone at that at that uh, retirement home was officers. All the residents." And, and, and the people run, there was also uh, retired officers. And they were saying that uh, one of the uh, residents in particular had indicated stuff been going on for years. And it was referring to what's the thing, was the uh, flooding. And he was telling me about this white substance coming. I said, well, there's no white substance in our sewer system. So we all went down to our sewer system where you can open it up and look, and it was nothing white in color. I never seen nothing white in color. Not only in that sewage system, but in no sewage system, not me personally. And I've had uh, a 40-year career. I never seen nothing white substance unless there's something particular going on. And so I had no idea. So I'm saying to myself, well, they got the wrong place. I obviously got the wrong place. Although we had a sewage problem that day, I knew for a fact it was nothing white and color could come from that facility. It was impossible. So anyway. They looked at it, and they, it, that, wasn't, that didn't mean anything. They said, we, 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 we determined it's coming from here. So they said, well, look, 
the only way you're going home today, uh, instead of jail, if you provide the information we need, which is to, it was two generals that run the facilities to, to, uh, uh, to confirm that they was aware that this practice went on and, 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 and it, was, it was against the law, which is something I couldn't do because I don't know what their knowledge was. I mean, they was aware that we had spillages, and they were aware that we diverted water, I'm pretty sure, because it had been going on for 20 years. But I had no personal knowledge of what they knew or what they didn't know. So I couldn't, I couldn't in good conscience, incriminate these people and be able to sleep at night, because I don't know what they know. I met with the two generals once a year for capital reasons, to give them a capital uh, uh, needs I have, and they'll give me the budget. And that way I have an idea of plan of what we can do capital-wise. That's the only time I have contact with people. Any other time, I see them in passing and wave. And by nature, I'm the type of person. When I go to work, I go to work, take it business. I don't go to socialize and play around. Hey, I'll come to get it done, make it happen, get out. So I told them, no, I couldn't do that. I can't uh, incriminate someone without, in my own conscience, knowing this is accurate, this is true. And this was, like I said, I got to about 4.30. They kept me there to 9 o'clock before they decided they wasn't going to 9 that night. They wasn't going to arrest me that night. They said, well, look, we're not going to arrest you tonight, but we're going to arrest you. That's why, you know, if, 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 you know, in order for me to, to keep from being arrested to, to destroy people that are already tired from the government, from representing our country, but here now caring for the people that's, that's, that's come back home, for me to go and... And, and 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 falsely accuse them of something I don't know. I couldn't do that. I couldn't do it then. I couldn't do it today. So in any event, maybe two weeks later, I was arrested and uh, fingerprinted and mugged up, all that nonsense. And uh, uh, you know, I, I, I was born and raised in a, in a, in, a, in a part of the city that. Most people from my community uh, experienced that very early in life. I'm one of the ones that made it, you know what I mean? That made it through there clean. Didn't get any police issues and any incarceration, any drug problems. I'm one of the ones that made my community proud, you know? When people see me, when teachers I see later on in life, I'm one of the ones that made them proud. Then I go to work and, and become a criminal. I wasn't at the site when it, when it took place uh, again, my boss was there, my assistant, but they were saying I had direct knowledge and direct ties to the to the upper administration, where my assistant didn't, and 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 I could verify what they say they already knew. What uh, some of the officers, I know one in particular, one officer they had, had shared with them about how long this been going on. So uh, I end up. You know, like I said, being charged with a, a felony, uh, the government was asking for five-year mandatory sentencing. Um, and, it, you know, I went through depression. I said, this has got to be crazy. It can't be real. You know, not me. Why me? You know, if, 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 if the history of this place you already ought to know was going on for 20 years, I mean, why pick me out of the middle? And, and it's basically seemed to be they was motivated by getting some big fish and we can get them through this guy. And you know, I, I can't do that without a clear conscience, you know. So um, 
Let's say five-year five year, uh, uh, mandatory sentences, what they demanded. And the people's very ugly and mean-spirited, cruel, really. That's what it was. I mean, it was, it was unlike anything you can imagine. I know it was unlike anything I can imagine. So, you know, near time for trial, you know, I had this pressure on me about pleading guilty the whole time. The, I didn't hire a lawyer because I said I didn't do anything wrong. I'm not going to hire any lawyer. I mean, for what? I don't need a lawyer. But the institution hired a lawyer, and they spent $100-something thousand on that lawyer to address my issues, and then another $100-something thousand dollars to address the institution uh, protection. So they spent over $300,000 with this stuff. And um, right near the, 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 my lawyer was, or the lawyer for the institution was telling me that even though you didn't do anything wrong, you weren't aware of something wrong was being done, the way this law is written, you're guilty anyway. You don't have to know. You don't have to be aware. And then I'm like, this can't be real. You know, it's, yeah, this, this is where it works. This is where it go. So I said, no, well, I take my chance. I'm not going to plead guilty of something I didn't do. And he kept hammering to me. He said, look, you're putting yourself before your family. He said, look, you're going to jail. He said, because... This is the way the law, you don't have to know. The law is actually written where you don't have to be aware that this is a violation of law. So right before trial, he said, look, I can get you a, a, a misdemeanor, which you only carry a year. And so I had to weigh that. And I had enough in my retirement to pay my house note and take in my family for a year. I said, well, if I had to go away for a year, at least my family has a place to live. If I lose, if I go to trial, they won't have a place to live. I don't have enough money to keep a roof on my family head till I come back. So for that reason, I ended up pleading guilty to a misdemeanor. And, uh, and still today, I'm very angry about it. I mean, really, really angry about that. And during this process, I had to go in this federal courthouse and and every time I walk down the hall, I always feel everybody looking at me, here come another criminal. I mean, what was about me would make me look any different from anybody else coming in? Then I had to go in this in the same federal courthouse to be involved in this pre-sentencing program. It was people just coming home from prison and people that may be going to prison. You had to be with all these people and and you're like, this gotta be this can't be real. It gotta be a dream. What the hell, what I'm doing here with these people, you know, how I don't fit in. I, don't, I shouldn't be in this room. There's no reason for me to be. So I had to go through that, and so I ended up getting um, uh, a year probation, six months community service, and I took my two daughters and my mother with me. I went to, church, to be sinners that day, and I, I told my 16 year old daughter, I said, "Look, stuff don't go right. You may have to drive y'all home." She didn't even have a license then, but she knew how to drive. Cause I, I teach all my kids how to drive when they're 12, 13. So you just, you just got to get y'all home. You know, I knew she could safely get them home, even though she wasn't licensed. And uh, that year while I was on probation, um, you, you know, you wouldn't believe what happened. You would think that, I, I can't even imagine a real criminal go through what I went through. I mean, I had to make monthly reports of where any dollar I get and where any dollar I do get, where it go. I had to, had to um, move the weapons out my house. I'm arrested with a gun on, I had to move them out the house. Uh, I couldn't travel. Uh, also, worked two jobs in order to take my family in. One of my jobs I shared with these probation people 
don't come to, or they're not aware of this, and I don't know how they would handle it. But they kept coming there anyway. I didn't mind them coming to the place when the incident happened, because you know, obviously everybody that knew. But they came to the old place, and people kept questioning, why these people keep coming up here? You know, and I told them stuff like, oh, these are people I grew up with at school, they stopped by to see me. But it was so fragrant, they started getting suspicious. And then one morning, um, one morning, about 5, 30, 6 o'clock in the morning, they come banging on my doors in the house, scaring the devil out of me and my family. Because they said they got a hit with, they referred to a hit me, I had some police contact. Later they found out, which I know I didn't have no police contact, later they found out uh, one of my cars, even I was driving, one of my kids was driving, uh, one of the photo cameras, you know, did the tags and the cars raising my name. So it showed up in the computer. It didn't say why. It showed this man had police contact. So they came to my house early in the morning and I say frighten everybody uh, uh, because of a photo camera. And nobody on this earth could have told me that I would plead guilty to something I wouldn't do. Nobody on this earth would have told me that. And I always wonder why people didn't take the stand when, if they innocent when they go. Now I understand. I understand why. Because if you got an attorney going to tell you, which is, could be absolutely correct, that look, if you take the stand, although you're innocent, they ain't going to do some other stuff that can confuse the jury. So before this happened to me, I could never figure out why an innocent person wouldn't take the stand. Also, nobody on earth could have told me why an innocent person would plead guilty. And I had to do that. Plead guilty to something that today, and one last thing I want to say to you, I took some EPA classes and I actually worked for the EPA. I worked for the CIA. I worked for the federal courthouse in Alexandria and Greenbelt. I had an extinguished uh, career. And even working for the EPA, there was nothing that ever indicated nothing about this kind of law. It was just nothing there, nothing posted, nothing in none of the regulations saying, hey, this kind of thing is, 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 a, is a criminal offense. And most of my career has been in management, but since that day, I haven't managed anything. I'm not going to ever manage anything anymore if you're going to bring that kind of threat and harm to me and my family. The only thing I'm going to manage is my home, which is 3605 Payback Lane in Bowie, Maryland. So lastly, I want to say to you, what I found out through these EPA classes was right here in the District of Columbia, right today, a third of the drains are integrated the same way, sewage and storm drains, right here today, a third of them. Also, I learned through this class was that in some states in America, for economical reasons, all the new buildings, they say, are gonna be built their way for economical reasons. But yeah, it's against the law. And, and this is something that's actively and currently going on all over America. So I thank you all for giving me the opportunity to just share, uh, uh, to allow me to share with you all that your life could be totally different tomorrow when the federal government get involved uh, with this heavy-handed bulletin, you know. All right, thank you all, you know. Thanks very much. Um, 
We have time now for to take a few questions before we adjourn for lunch. I have a couple of questions. If I call on you, please identify yourself and any affiliation that you might have. Uh, wait for the microphone so that we can all hear your question and then keep your questions brief, please, so that we can get to as many people as possible. Yes, sir. Hi, I'm Scott Tanner. I'm appointed to Just wait for the uh, mic to come down. Thanks for all the panelists being here today. Uh, very informative. I'm Scott Tanner, acquainted with Kevin Gates, and uh, I've read the op-eds in the Wall Street Journal. And I guess my question for Kevin is, given that this the status of this case right now, it's a non-public informal investigation, what does absolute vindication for you look like at this point? Um, your open kimono, what does FERC need to do to, to satisfy you at this stage? Um, well, as an, as an initial matter, it would be great if they dropped the investigation. Um, still, to be fair, I don't think that that would make me satisfied. Um, I remember saying years ago that I, I just wanted an apology. I just wanted an apology. Um, it, it doesn't matter about the money. It, it just I want them to admit that they made a mistake with us and more significantly come to the realization that they shouldn't treat other people this way. Um, also, obviously, I have uh, Norman Bay, the director of enforcement at FERC, has been nominated by President Obama to be the chairman. And obviously, I have some strong views about his qualifications as well. And I hope the Senate does the right thing. Yes, sir. Roman Bueller with Madison Coalition. So um, we have, you know, 5,000 5, years or so of experience with government. And uh, abuse of power by government officials is not new uh, and not likely to end. So my question to any of you is, do you think the solution is, um, you know, better people in government? Uh, or is there, are there systemic solutions uh, to these kinds of problems that we ought to be talking about that go beyond, well, let's abolish FERC or, you know, are there systemic solutions that any of you have in mind uh, that might address these problems? Dr. Hurwitz, did you have any thoughts on that? Well, perhaps with respect to medical regulation, I had suggested that given the problematic nature and the public health implications of diversion and abuse of opioids, that uh, medical boards set up advisory panels, uh, that there be the equivalent of sort of some, some official mechanism to either certify patients. I thought that if instead of having the DEA prosecute me, they had simply availed themselves of the data which my patients were willing to provide, they could have policed it perfectly well and perhaps provided enough incentive for people to avoid uh, ripping off doctors. I, I mean, that's a very specific issue. On, on a more general uh, point, I think there's a decay in the sense of communal responsibility. And I think that it has to do with what I'll call American egotism and, and uh, individual, individualism or individuality. And, and that concern for the, what should I call it, the well-being of the community and the security of other people has diminished. And I'm not sure what to do to address that as a sort of generic issue. So that instead we have the triumph of careerism versus communalism. I mean, obviously, I made conscious choices about whether or not to police my patients, whether or not to be an agent of the, of the cops or to be a doc. I, I decided it was worth the good fight to fight. And uh, 
I did it not just out of careerism, but out of a sense of duty to the patients that I had undertaken to take care of. And uh, I don't know how much of that spirit there is. I think there's been a general decay, at least among the people who were formerly, uh, what shall I say, my allies in this pain issue, uh, have in effect subordinated themselves to the now conventional wisdom relating to the war on drugs. Did you want to say something, Will? Oh, indeed, just very briefly. I'd uh, intimated during my talk that I do believe there are systemic responses um, to which, or for, with which, like, that uh, FERC could avail themselves of. And by this, I mean the liberalization of the market, and we would thereby attain oversight of the market through competitive discipline, through these, these, um, these brilliant actors all competing against one another, thereby ensuring that these market distortions um, are ironed out. I'll note one other thing with regard to um, the gentleman. I'm sorry, I didn't even... Uh, Lewis. Lewis, wonderful. Lewis is very, very moving, uh, moving talk. Prosecutorial discretion. I mean, that is an outrage. It's one thing when we're talking about regulating markets. It's another thing when a prosecutor looks at the facts on the ground and says, we're going to threaten this guy with five years of prison? He works at a, a nursing home. There was a sewage backup. That's ludicrous. So this notion that, that the, 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 the absence of prosecutorial discretion, that this... this um, you know, that's inherent to every prosecutorial regime. No one thinks that every letter of every law must be, uh, must be implemented, must be, opposed, must be prosecuted, must be enforced. That, that's, that's outrageous. Um, so, indeed, I would say it depends on the regime in question. FERC, yes, with regard to this Clean Water Act, it, it, somebody with a brain in charge is what it takes. Right. I mean, here at Cato, we're constantly saying there's just too many things that are criminal these days. So we need to roll back the criminal code and... In the meantime, you can establish a reform where the line between lawful conduct and unlawful conduct is crystal clear. Uh, for example, like in the tax area, uh, you know, the IRS has to investigate tax evasion, but everybody knows how complicated the, the tax code is. Uh, in order to prove tax evasion, they have to prove that somebody willfully violated the law. They knew one thing and went ahead and deliberately crossed that line. And we need that type of high standard, not just in the tax area, but all of these other regulatory areas. And that would protect people who make honest mistakes. And, and, and that's what we need to have done uh, immediately. Uh, a reform like that needs to be immediately put in place to protect innocent-minded people. Other questions? In the back, yes. I shouldn't do this, but um, in response to your specific, yeah, in response to your specific question about uh, uh, regulatory changes that might prevent some of these incidents. We can hardly hear you. Hold it right next to you, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think it depends on exactly which arena you're in. Uh, just as a footnote, I submitted a uh, terrorist, uh, a tip to the FBI terrorist uh, website in June of 2002. And over the next five or six years, there were six incidents in which my life was actually um, put on the line um, by qu in questionable circumstances, one of which uh, was when somebody placed a carbon disulfite in the trunk of my car in my documents. And uh, most recently, last month, um, I live out of the country as a consequence, and you know, my information came up on someone's grid. But over the past uh, six years, I've documented my story with the various offices in the Senate and um, 
House representatives, and essentially no one um, is, uh, no one cares. So within the legal arena, um, ratification of the way that the prosecutors pursue physicians, it's not going to happen because it's a law enforcement agency. Um, with um, law enforcement issues related to Homeland Security, um, changes aren't going to happen because the people who sent out, s sit on the Senate Intelligence Committee and the politicians who m have regulatory control um, basically are interested in the status quo. Okay, we have time for one more question before we adjourn. Yes, sir, in the back. I'm Mike Doherty with uh, LabMD in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, the big picture I see, Pat, and I'm, I'm embroiled in the Federal Trade Commission right now, <clears throat> the big picture is you have all these agencies selling to the public how they're saving the day and helping everyone. We pull the mask back and we see this increasingly almost, well, criminal in some cases behavior, certainly unethical and moral, stretching every loophole they can. And they capitalize on this because the public, I think, is asleep. And until we get something greater, Congress isn't going to pay attention unless their constituents are really um, awakened, I think. So I don't know. I, I'm hoping with all these things. But do you have any, any uh, feedback on how you've got any positive public support on this outside your industry um, to, to, tr to convince the public over time that this is a, we can't have this type of regulatory state and it's uh, damaging us? Any comments? Yeah, I, I can say that that's definitely the case. After the um, J.P. Morgan was involved in power trading and an investigation, I guess, began in 2010, 2000, 2011, they settled last year uh, in the beginning of July, and the very next day got letters from the two senators in Massachusetts congratulating them on their fine work. And, um, you know, they got a lot of publicity on House of Cards. And, you know, you go online, at least as of six months ago, and everybody was saying how great the FERC was. They were the only ones who were holding corporate America and Wall Street accountable. Um, I think perhaps the, the website that we have launched has exposed some of their behaviors and some of the publicity that's associated with our site um, has exposed it as uh, problematic at best. Um, so I think that the, the tide is turning, at least as it relates to our investigation and perhaps the, the public's perception generally about the FERC Office of Enforcement's practices. Okay, I'm afraid we've run out of time, but everybody here is invited to the luncheon that we'll be holding uh, two, two flights up from here uh, on the second floor. Please thank our panel for a good discussion.